Hello and welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Scarsbrook, also known as The Intrepid Wino. And this past week, there was a fair amount of activity going on in Adelaide. Um, there was the first ever Saver Oz uh, event, which was organized by Wine Australia. A lot of people were in, uh, invited from overseas, um, from wine writers, um, wine professionals, also sommeliers, lots of gatekeepers around the world from North America, UK, Europe, uh, and Asia. And they were all brought together to talk about Australian wine. Um, they had lots of different conferences. A lot of messages were coming out of it. And if you were following Twitter like I was, um, a lot of interesting information came out about it. Uh, hopefully, uh, all these people from around the world went away with positive message about messages about Australia and Australia's wine. One of the big things that came out of it for me was the the push of about restaurants and sort of point out to the world that the like dining is such an important part of modern Australia now, and hopefully that will flow through with the wines so that people understand that the the wines we do make in Australia are not necessarily um, all big blockbuster wines that don't go with food. We because we have such a vibrant dining scene in Australia, there is that need to have wines that do pair very well with food. Um, I guess probably for me was one of the disappointing things about it was that a lot of the representation was from big players in the domestic wine market, whether that be um, big wine companies, big wine producers, uh, or big retailers. Uh, There was less influence from smaller producers. But I guess at the end of the day, it's about who can afford to um, to be involved with the with the program uh, and who pays the most in levies, in particular. But um, I guess that that event has its its uh, need, its relevance. Um, it's probably not necessarily the kind of stuff that I'm going to talk about, um, and certainly not what this podcast is about, uh, particularly with today's guest. So today I've invited in a guy by the name of Daniel Honan, who is also known as the Wine Idealist. He's originally from Newcastle. Uh, He has a background in journalism, but uh, had discovered a passion for wine in London, from what I understand. Uh, And he is back in the Hunter Valley now, uh, working on a number of projects, including his blog, where he writes about uh, everything biodynamic, organic and natural in terms of wines in Australia. So it's his big passion. I thought it'd be interesting to invite him in to talk about not only himself, but what why he's so passionate about those kind of things. So thank you for joining us, Daniel. You're welcome, James. No worries. Thanks for having me. So um, take us back uh, to, uh, to to Newcastle. Growing up in Newcastle, obviously Newcastle is in the Hunter Valley, which is mm. one of Australia's most historic and well-recognised wine regions. Yeah. Well, how, what was that like growing up? And, how, and did you have any contact with wine back in those days? Not really. Uh, when you you live in the Hunter Valley, a lot of people don't really have the appreciation that there are some of the best wines in the world literally on their doorstep. Yeah. And um, the thing about the Hunter Valley is that it's Australia's oldest wine region. Mm-hmm. You know, it started the whole thing. James Busby planted the vines at Brankston in 1825, and uh, we've never actually f- suffered from phylloxera. So we actually have some of the oldest vines in the world as well, which is really cool. And I didn't realise any of this. Uh, until I came back from traveling, traveling around Europe and, and that sort of thing, and that's interesting because the old vine is such an uh, important component of the Barossa Valley, and also there's a number of vineyards in Victoria who uh, sort of really champion the fact that they've got own rooted um, vines 
dating back to the mid 19th century, but the Hunter Valley, it's sort of, it's, I don't know, it's something that they maybe don't talk about that much. I don't think it's, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that they don't really talk about. I I learnt this from Bruce Tyrrell, um, chatting with him, and he was, you know, mentioning the fact that um, we hadn't received any phylloxis in the Hunter, so... um, because a lot of the uh, the vineyards in Europe had been grafted with Californian rootstock in order to save them mm-hmm. back in the day, um, and because it, it had never arrived in the Hunter, then um, as according to Bruce Tyrrell, we have some of the oldest vines. But it is something that I guess they don't really talk about, and I don't know yeah, why that is. You, so you didn't have any contact with wine yourself? Oh um, yeah, absolutely, heaps of contact with wine. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah, through university, um, one of the things was um, if you if you went out in town. Um, between the two pubs, we had uh, little ec- electrical boxes, mm-hmm. and there was lots of reeds and, and and weeds and things growing up and around the electrical boxes. And um, between the two pubs, there'd be a goon sack, and so you'd Sorry, walk from go- one pub a, go- a goon sack. Can you, you know, like can you just a, explain uh, for the for our audience who might not know what that is? A goon sack is the the, the silver bladder inside a, a box of wine. The that, plastic bladder. The plastic bladder. Yeah, the, the silver plastic bladder that. You, you get, and anyway, we, we would basically remove that from the cardboard box, <laughs> hide it under amongst the reeds, so that when you're walking from one pub to the next, you'd have a stop-off point so you can sure. uh, drink some. I mean, my friends and I, we used to drink Stanley Dry Whites and mix it with lemonade. We were, we were total fascists, <laughs> uh, but that's university what, a white days. Wine and, spritzer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're university days, and um, what did you, you know, study at uni? Uh, journalism. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so you follow that career path. Yeah, I did. Um, I finished uni and graduated in 2008 mm-hmm. and um, moved down to Sydney and worked um, for uh, Foxtel okay. for a little while. News Corp. Yeah, yeah. Rupert's... Mr. Uh, Mr. Murdoch. My old mate. Um, it, to be fair, it was, it, was a, it was a pretty cool gig, but um, I then got a gig at, uh, at the ABC um, before moving over to... Probably could not have got two more different... Um, places to work. Well, the, the intention when I left uni was to always work for um, the BBC. What sort um, of, I mean, what sort of journalism did you have, or did you have a particular interest in any kind of journalism? Uh, it, when I was doing it, I was still starting out, so it was uh, a lot of broadcast stuff in the initial days. Yeah. By the time I got to London uh, and I got a gig um, working at the BBC in uh, West London, that was uh, in sort of like an assistant producer role. So. I would help the producer um, gather material for whatever was breaking in that particular day. You might get assigned a certain number of stories and then you'd, it'd be up to you to acquire that information from the journalists out in the field or any video, any audio, any uh, copy that you might need to write, something like that. And, you know, that was cool. Um, and you, you sort of, you're working at the BBC, that's pretty amazing. Mm. You know? um, that's the whole point of moving to, to London was to work there. And, you know, it was it was a very immense privilege to and, and in your time as working as a journalist um did you have did you maintain any kind of connection with wine at all or mm. uh, you know, i can imagine journalists being oh, they're heavy all drinkers. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> borderline alcoholics um yeah. there was a bar down the road from where we worked at the bbc um mm-hmm. called the albertine okay I, I used to go in there and um i became friendly with the staff that sort of thing. Um, did a few shifts, yeah, um, just to kill some time, and um, found out that it was actually far away more enjoyable than presenting bad news stories each and every day. Mm. Um, you know, you, you're learning about this this incredible thing called wine, and you know, a lot of the times you'll come across millions and millions of bottles, and they won't really do much for you, but occasionally you'll stumble across one that 
changes your whole perspective of, of what, what it is. Um, and we had this one particular one from the Loire called Le Clomobile, and it was a Cab Franc. And uh, it was the most amazing wine I think I've tasted to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to call it the wine porn. And we did it by the glass. And if they, if ever someone asks, what's your suggestion for a wine? We would suggest the Le Clomobile just so that we could have the bottle open because at nine o'clock we were allowed to drink the wines. Yeah. You know, that was part of the thing. So uh, if we could make sure that that bottle of wine was open by the time nine o'clock rolled around, then we can hook into the to this wine, to the wine porn that we called. So so just taking it back when you were still working with the BBC, was it the experience of this venue or was it a particular wine that you tasted that kind of really uh, had, the, there was this, an explosion of interest in wine for you? No, I think to be honest, it was more the, the whole experience. The Albertine as an entity. Was it immediate or did it, was it gradual? No, no, it was, it was immediate. The, okay. the, the people that worked there, um, Giles Phillips, the owner, he's owned and ran the place for 32 years, mm-hmm. extremely knowledgeable in his wines, but um, retains a whole lot of hubris about it. You know, he won't sort of try and impress you with his knowledge. He just um, trusts his palate and asks you to do the same thing. Sure. And um, that approach really kind of, I guess, sat well with me. You know, it, it, I guess it was... It was uh, I hesitate to use the word inspiring, but it was it was like that, you know. Yeah, of course. He, he um, showed me some amazing wines. The staff, you know, a lot of them are all my best friends now. Mm-hmm. And just the whole place as a whole, um, the con- context of the Albertine um, is what made wine so amazing. Well, who actually initiated? Did did you sort of express interest in working there, or did did you kind of say mm, I'm, not, I'm not really loving working as a journalist? And Giles sort of said, "Well, you know, why don't you come start working here?" Hey, we, I, I was the initiator, to be honest. I mean, Giles always wanted me to work there. You know, he started inviting me to tastings and things like this, and started to ask me, "Wow, for you know, he he would show me a bottle of wine and, and ask for my opinion, which sure. was which was cool." Um, and I used to get called the golden boy by the other um, staff, the girls that worked there, because he would, yeah, he'd open up special bottles and things like that, and he'd be like, and they'd do, well, Giles never does this. Why, why is he doing it for you all of a sudden? Yeah. Um, and I guess that was just that sort of um, gentle encouragement and validation that, um, you know, you, you might know a little bit about wine. You might, you might want to know a little bit about wine, so yeah. I, I can kind of, you know, um, show you, I suppose. And um yeah, going to tastings and things, it was really cool. We, we went to a tasting over in um, for Liberty Wines. Um, it's a massive, massive, massive Yeah, I've tasting. heard of that one. It's, it, I think it's like the biggest trade tasting in the world or something like that. It, it, was, it was huge. Hundreds and it hundreds was daunting and, and you couldn't even get through half of them. Like, you sure. Know, you had to really set a list. But we, um, we went and to... For, and, and for the uninitiated, it's probably going to be even more daunting. Yeah, <laughs> even for the experienced people who are used to assessing wines almost every day, Yeah, it can be pretty intimidating. But for someone who's never seen that kind of thing before, I could imagine it being pretty, whoa, just all these wines. It, it was it was tough to get your head around. I mean, we had this massive, thick book, binded book, that had all the wines listed that were on, on show that day. Um, it was over at the Oval um, Cricket Ground. Okay. And up in one of the function centres there. And uh, the real wine fair was going to be on how long how long has that been going on because i've only just sort of recently been introduced to it in fact i did, i had i had i heard about rootstock before i heard about the real wine fair there was the natural wine fair in borough market um probably i think it was late maybe october in 2011 mm-hmm. um 
and then real wine fair and raw popped up. Yep. Um, and I went along to real wine fair. Um, it was the first one in Hoban underneath. Um, it, was, it was almost like in a car park or something. It was, oh, yeah. That's different. And uh, it was, um, I just went along and uh, as a representative of the Albertine. Yeah. You know, um, Charles, so, did, so at this point you were you were working there? At this point, yeah. I'd, I'd quit the BBC and, and kind of gone and done casual work for them how, and how, were working did, full time at their bar. How did your parents feel about you chucking in a career in journalism to... Oh, they've always been pretty like cool with, with my decisions. You know, they know that, you know, you can, uh, if you can get it done, then good luck to you. That's and, good. And we'll support you. But, yeah. Um, the, I went to the Real Wine Fair... Um, as representative of, of the Albertine, Giles couldn't go mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason. And so I went and I had my little tasting um, notebook yep. and uh, pen and um, was super nervous because you know, it was the first time I'd been to one of these things by myself and rocked in and wasn't sure about the etiquette, how you do this, what the tasting rules were. Tasting order, that kind of thing. Yeah, this sort of thing. So I just kind of rolled in and there's just this hum and buzz in the in the uh, in this underground space in underneath Holborn and all this chatter and all this noise and all this, um, you know, talking going on. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'll start at the beginning and sort of worked my way around and, and then got a little bit fatigued, went and had something to eat, walked around a little bit more, spoke to some Spanish producers, spoke to some guys that we had their wines on in the list uh, yep. where I worked. Yep. And, um, there was this tiny little corner up, up and up a few flights of steps um, and there was about three or four um, Australian producers. Yeah, and all these wines were natural, organic, and biodynamic. That was the um, that was the remit. Okay. And um, there was just these three or four producers, and I was like, okay, because there was Ita- Italian, Spanish, um, you know, French, Heaps German, French. loads and loads of guys from Europe, all doing this stuff. Any, anything from North or South America or South Africa? Um, that you remember? Not that I remember. Okay. But I'm sure there would have been. Sure. But yeah, these these guys. And anyway, so I think one of them might have been Tom Sherbrook, but the one that I do remember was Castagna. Julian. And Julian was there with Adam. But I, and I struck up a conversation with Adam Castagna and um, he poured some wines. Adam's rib was nice. It was really, really, really nice. Poured the Insegrato 2009 and that was even better. That mm-hmm. was like incredible. Mm-hmm. And then he poured me the Genesis Syrah. Yeah. And I just lost my mind. Yeah. Like, like I literally lost my mind. It was just like the most incredible thing I'd ever tasted in my life. It was, okay. It smelt, it, it, it just, I don't know, wonderful, brilliant, beautiful. All these words don't even really do it justice. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the wine, you know, you have a wine where it's just like, wow. Yeah. Okay. It's profound. It's, I it's guess. exhilarating. It's like hearing the voice of God almost. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of like just that moment where you go, okay, now I get what people, yeah. why people just go on about this stuff all the time. But I think it's more than that. I think it's the fact that you finally have found something that speaks to you and, and something you, when, when you say, oh, I get it. It's not a question of, oh, I see what everyone else gets. It's like, oh, I get it. Mm. You know, and this is uh, what I'm finding in yeah. this is, is really speaking to me. Yeah. Personally. Um, before that, did you? I mean, how much? How much of the natural, biodynamic, organic wines were on the list of the Albertine? Oh, there were a few. Um, that Le Clomobile, the, okay. the, the one that we used to open up. That, was that a Chinon? That was um, no, it wasn't from Chinon. No, it wasn't. Um, it was from a tiny, tiny little producer. 
I don't even know a great deal of information about it because there isn't any information. I tried to look it up n- yeah. numerous times, couldn't find anything. Um, yeah, that's that's not a, a, a unique problem. There. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, particularly particularly with those kind of wines, these these are producers who are really they're farmers, and and obviously all their attention is put into um, tending for their, their 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 sites, their vineyards, and making the best wine. They don't really have a lot of time to to be speaking to people or to be putting beautiful websites with lots of information together. It's about just making really great wine. Yeah. Um, and so, so that was sort of the big introduction to those kind of wines, this big, this big fair yeah. and how ironic that <laughs> the other side of the world, you got intro- introduced to an Australian wine yeah. that spoke to you. And do you think that, that maybe there was more of a connection because it was, it was an Australian wine? It, it sparked a curiosity to be honest. Sure. Um, because my opinion, my, most of the world, is that Australian wines are um, consisting of, you know, Yellowtail, Hardy's, um, Jacob's Creek, sure. Lindemann's, and you can go into Sainsbury's or Tesco's and spend, you know, six quid and you've got a nice bottle of red. Um, and it's the same nice bottle of red as you could have bought 10 years ago. It's of exactly the same. And that's nice and they've, they've got a purpose and they've got a point and I'd prefer people to drink those wines than not drink wine at all. Of course. But um, if it went for that wine, then Australian wine wouldn't be the most uh, drunk, uh, consumed wine or, or country of origin in the UK. Mm. It's, it, it's all well and good for them to say, oh, we export X amount. You know, we're, I think, fifth, the fifth largest exporter of wine in the world, mm-hmm. Australia, and... I think at least 50% of the wine is exported. But then you have to look at who's exporting it and what's the average bottle price. And it's significantly lower than the wine we actually do consume in Australia. Yeah. And and maybe I think that's... I think, to, to be honest, Australian consumers don't even know how good we've got it, that, that the quality of Australian wine is so good and the rest of the world doesn't really know that much about it. But you're right, there is that perception. I, I visited producers uh, overseas... Uh, particularly the ones in in Europe all had that that perception about Australian wine. And you you think, well, that's not true, but at the same time, that's the wine that they have access to. Yeah. They have access to that fairly large-scale commercial wine, um, which is going for uniformity and consistency from vintage to vintage, uh, where regionality is almost irrelevant. Mm. And they're, they're, they're the flagship wines that we present over in Australia. And, and look, that's, that's, there's, there's not an, an issue or a problem with that. Um, what was profound for me in that glass of, of Genesis was that I'd never tried anything like this before from Australia. And it was from Australia, I think, is probably the most important thing. It was from Australia. I was like, yeah. all of a sudden, like, wow, like, do we make this in Australia? Can, yeah. we, can we grow this? Yeah. Can this, can this happen? Yeah. And, um, and I, I went back to the Albertine and um, was just like, Charles, we need to get this on the list. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can, it, it's, you know, it's, it's expensive wine. It is expensive bottle of wine, but we can, we could, we could tick this over. I mean, well, more uh, importantly, you could tick it over. Yeah. I could tick it over. I'm Australian. This is Australian. What more reason? Or just do you need? drink it. Just drink it. Um, so fast forward, basically, uh, I couldn't get my visa renewed because um, working in a bar wasn't considered a profession. So if I'd have stayed at the BBC, I could have stayed in the country. But um, I changed careers and therefore that meant um, coming back to Australia. And so when I arrived back in Australia in, in November, I just wanted to find out more about 
good as like these these kind of wines. Are there any more? Are there any more Castagna wines? You know, like, is there anyone else doing this sort of stuff? Yeah. And um, I looked at what Castagna were doing, and that was biodynamics. And I tried to figure out what that was. Yeah. And read a little bit of information. And then I I realized that a lot of the wines that I enjoyed while I was drinking at the Albertine, when I was going out in London, the real wine fair, these sorts of things, a lot of them were either natural, organic, or biodynamically yeah. grown wines. It's one of those things where they don't necessarily publicize that. It's just, that's just the way we do it to make the best expression that we, we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even though certification is so important to a lot of producers, a lot of other producers say, well, I don't need to get certification. I'm not doing it. I'm not justifying it. Yeah. I, uh, I don't need to justify it. The proof is in the glass and the proof is in the kind of wine that I want to make and that I want to drink. That's right. Uh, certification is an interesting topic because some people are against it very heavily and some people are uh, totally for it. Sure. Um, you know, those that are certified will say you need to be certified. If you want to say that you're organic, if you want to say that you're biodynamic, then you need to be certified. Yeah. Um, those that don't want to be certified will have a different argument and say that certification is utilized as a marketing exercise. Yep. Um, and that their word, that their um, honesty, that, that their intentions as a winemaker or a wine grower should be all that the consumer needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they won't put it on the label, A, because they can't, but B, because it's not important to them. Um, it just happens to be a tool that they use for making or, or growing these particular wines. Um, I don't know. I, I haven't really made up my mind in terms of whether or not certification is worthwhile or not. What I would prefer to see is um conventional viticulture just be organic or biodynamic and not really made a fuss about and conventional agriculture as we know it today is called chemical agriculture so it sort of flips around uh i don't understand how we got to a point where we're using agrochemicals on our properties no matter if you're farming you know an orchard strawberries oranges grapes whatever um and this is considered conventional. Conventional agriculture is just, it, it's a, an insult to the planet and degrades the soil and, yeah. and makes it unhealthy for everybody. But unfortunately, though, we couldn't produce the amount of wine in the world that we do if it weren't for, for, that, for conventional um, techniques. Yeah. I, the, the, I think the, the point to get across would just be that that shouldn't be called conventional agriculture. No. It should be called something else. And chemical is probably a bit too loaded, but that's what it is. Exactly. Chemical has now has that very negative connotation. So conventional is, is a, it's a bit of marketing spin, to be honest. Well, I mean, that, that, that is it. I just I think it's interesting that it's, it's got to a point where conventional... You have to... It's certif- you talk about certification. Sure. Um, you have to um, get audited, pay a little bit of money, mm-hmm. a lot of money sometimes, um, to various certification um, boards. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to basically go through all these steps and hoops to prove that you've done nothing, essentially, in the vineyard. Organic viticulture is all about what not to do. Sure. You know, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Yes. Um Biodynamics is a little bit beyond that, and it, it, it's, it shows you what to do, but also what not to do. Sure. But the thing is, you're not kind of doing much out in the vineyard. 
um, as if you were adhering to a spray calendar from... I, I think I think probably initially there is a fair amount of work that needs to be done. You basically need to... I mean, you, by taking away <clears throat> things like irrigation and chemicals, which the vines are relying on, which has obviously led them to being so lazy and and the roots not going very deep because they don't have to go f- far to find the mm. nutrition and, and water to live, basically. Um, by taking that kind of thing away, the vine is going to struggle. So you have to do certain things to try and help it find that, that balance, yeah. that, that, um, the, 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 its own harmony and, and strengthen enough to to not need those kind of things basically it's 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 it's, it's like you're coming off drugs basically yeah. <laughs> you, you, it's it's pretty tough just to go cold turkey so you have to find some way to, to sort of help in that recovery process and, and regeneration which is why obviously with the certification they don't you, you can't it, the certification process takes three or four years yeah yeah and uh, exactly but the, the fact that you have to put that on the label you have to prove that you're doing these things out in the vineyard that are fairly uh, innocuous and 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 fairly um s- treading a lot more softly than mm-hmm. if you were spraying with yeah um you know any any sort of um you know pre-emergent chemicals whatever um s- fertilizers yeah all the, all the sides yeah. you know, and f- f- pesticides and things like that um why you have to do that when you can go and spray and not have to say anything mm-hmm. you know it's kind of cut before the horse mentality in my studies with the university of adelaide um, we did look at sort of viticulture and we sort of talked very, very, um, very briefly on organics and biodynamics to sort of get an idea about what, what they are and how they're different to conventional um, viticulture. And what I, the, the kind of the distinction that I made, obviously, particularly between conventional and organics, is that, um, as you say, it's, it's, it's more a question of allowing it to find its own health and strength to resist things that you would need chemicals for, uh, and to and to to find ways for it to uh, naturally provide good, healthy yields without the need of fertilizers, and to find water sources deeper down, so the roots have to go deeper to find water, so you don't need irrigation, that kind of thing. Um, and conventional viticulture, as you say, it's it's a, it's basically it's a recipe. It's it's you do it on the, at this at certain times, relevant of what um, any kind of data is going to show you, whether that's weather or um, or, or or pest control. Um, I, I kind of make the distinction between organic and biodynamic, where organic is you trying to do almost nothing, whereas biodynamic is still there is still sort of a recipe involved. We, you, in, you're, in terms you're, of preparations and 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 um, tear like what is a tearing between the rows, that kind of thing, just to sort of ameliorate, yeah, open yeah, up the soils. Yeah. Um, there is there is still a certain element of a system in place, but obviously at the same time, still trying to encourage the vines to find their own natural harmony with the environment and to to try and encourage a bit of biodiversity. Yeah, it's it's softer. It's softer farm, sure. farming. That's all it is. Um, it's, it's really, I mean, it's not rocket science, to be honest. It, it's, it's, well, th- this is one of the things that a lot of them say is that, um, well, this is nothing new. Like we've talked about this, like biodynamics and organics is this new thing, but my grandfather was doing it this way yeah. and there was no, there was no such thing. It was never called exactly. anything, but this is just the way we did it. We, we know we have our plots. Of course, you know, we're talking about the old world. We're talking about Europe. We have our plots and 
we have inherited uh, knowledge about the best way to, to, to tend for our soils and our vines to, 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 to be the best they can be um, each vintage and, and to find that and to be strong enough to have resistance to pests or weather uh, or fungal disease, that kind of thing. Um, but one of the things I found interesting is that um, places that already were doing it were sort of saying, yep, yeah, that's the way we do it, nothing new. But then there were places in Europe that converted, which is difficult in a lot of regions because uh, you're not, you don't have an entire vineyard. Like, like sitting by itself, you don't necessarily have a whole vineyard to yourself. Through the process of history, inheritance, that kind of thing, you might have a plot or several plots in one vineyard. So to convert those particular plots to biodynamic or organic viticulture is complicated because you've got everyone around you who might still be using conventional uh, viticultural techniques and they're still using irrigation and chemicals, that kind of thing. In the new world, because that, that doesn't really exist, you have your own vineyard and it's, it's unlikely you're going to have anyone else's vineyard either around it or next to it. It's much easier to, to, to control that. You can use those kind of techniques um, and not have any impact around it. Mm. Although I will say that I, I have visited some vineyards in the world that, you know, it's, it is one vineyard. It's all owned by the same winery or company, but they have a section of the vineyard that is biodynamic or a section of the vineyard is organic purely to get certification, to put it on their label, to say, hey, look, we have a biodynamic wine. We, we love the environment. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was being taken through and they said, oh, that's the biodynamic section. I said, what about everywhere around it? And they said, oh, no, it's still conventional. We used to use chemicals. Oh, so is there like this invisible wall that protects that vineyard from all of the sprays you're using and, and all of the irrigation? You reckon there's no impact on that one section? Yeah. They, they probably, I mean, a lot of them sometimes they start with one um, site and, and, and trial. Sure. You know, organic or biodynamics on, on the thing. But you can't be half pregnant. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you're going to make um, a biodynamic wine um, and, and then make other wines, I mean, you are using it as a marketing tool. Sure. And like, when it comes to stuff like this, I'm a, I'm a, I am an ultimate romantic and an idealist. That's why it's called the wine idealist, because um, you can't be half pregnant. You've got to you've got to commit fully to a, an ideal, yeah. or an idea, yeah, and um, and see that through to the best possible way that you can do it. So, for you to have a section of your vineyard that's paying token um, props to to biodynamics. Mm. Is is just an insult to wine. <laughs> it's no, it's an insult to everything. Sure, because it's like McDonald's when they chuck on their salad sandwiches on their menus. Yeah, it's like well, we got a lot of stick after um, Morgan Spurlock put out that documentary, so we'll we'll make a salad. That and makes, it's like and no one goes to okay. McDonald's to eat salad. No, you know what I mean? Because McDonald's isn't healthy. We know it's not healthy. Yeah, but god damn it, I like it when I'm hungover. Yeah, okay? and I accept that. <laughs> That's my personal choice. Of course, but don't like um, you know pander to some kind of idea that you think that I'm not going to come into your store unless you've got salad on the menu sure. or I'm not going to buy your kinds of wines unless sure. you've got an organic wine. Yeah. I don't really care. I, I, if it tastes good, that's the most important thing for me. And I'm not really interested really uh, when I'm drinking my wines, whether or not they're conventional or organic, biodynamic or other. 
what I've found from personal experience is that a lot of these wines that are made with a softer approach, with a more natural, gentle, um, sustainable approach to their viticulture, mm-hmm. their wines seem to taste a lot better, in one my the, opinion. Okay. One of the kind of contentious topics of discussion with the, this whole issue is um, the fact that, particularly in terms of certification, it's only for viticulture. So, like, to say that you, you are a biodynamic organic is purely about how you are actually growing the grapes. What about the actual winemaking? That, that's the kind of thing that I always, I always ask, well, are you using, do you have the same philosophies when it actually is brought into the cellars? Because I've seen quite a few uh, wines that they don't really taste as if they are biodynamic organic, even though they're claiming to be that way because they might be using techniques in the winery that are kind of almost defeating the purpose. Well, they're, they're, they're winemaking. They're winemaking. Winemaking is winemaking is winemaking. Um, real wines, wines that are great are made out in the vineyard. Mm-hmm. So if you get really good fruit, if you grow really good fruit and there's a real concentration of flavor, yeah. of um, you know characteristics, all these beautiful things that we are given in this inside this little berry, mm-hmm. if there's a concentration of all of that, then it's very easy to then make that into some wine. You can still stuff it up. You need a caretaker. You need an interpreter. So you don't need a manipulator. No. If you've got really poor quality fruit, you need a, you need a manipulator. Yeah. You need to be able to lift the acids, decrease the sugars. Um, Basically hide the flaws. Yeah, exactly. Plug up the holes. Mm-hmm. Um, Ray Nadson um, from Lethbridge Wines, on, I was speaking to him on Wednesday, and you know he, he gave this analogy of... Um, a pebble with like holes in it. Mm-hmm. You know? um, if you want to make a carving of a really beautiful, you know, like maybe a, a piece of marble. Say you got a piece of marble mm-hmm. and you want to make a statue out of it. If that marble is riddled with holes, the statue by the end is not going to be as, you're going to have to work really hard to manipulate and shape those holes mm-hmm. to get a really nice statue. Mm-hmm. If you've got the really nice, big, beautiful block of marble to begin with, mm-hmm. then it's quite easy to just adjust and and take things away as required or yeah. what whatnot. Um, so just because you're growing organic or biodynamic fruit in the vineyard doesn't mean your wines are going to be great. Sure, you still need a caretaker in the winery to be able to to interpret that fruit that's being grown out there. Sure, and what you'll find is a lot of people that are either organic or biodynamic will have that kind of soft approach in the vineyard and they carry that through to the winery Mm -hmm. so they realize well we've already got really good fruit so let's not screw it up let's try and just ferment it and you know some people will add things if they need to if there's a little bit of acid lacking or um you know maybe the the alcohol's too much but yeah they're out there working in the vineyard first and foremost yeah and in the winery it's just a it's a caretaker role and hence why there is such respect for the, 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 the term vigneron, because those are the people who are actually taking it from where to go. They're, they're, they're tending their vines, they're harvesting the fruit, and they're making them wines themselves. You need, if you're a winemaker, you need to know what's going on in the vineyard, because yeah. that's your product out there. I think there are a lot of winemakers who would disagree. Yeah, and there are, absolutely. <laughs> but you do. But, um, you, you know. should know. Um, you, if you're a carpenter, you don't need to go and walk around the forest and, and check out the redwoods. Yeah. But, um, 
you know, you need to find out what maybe where, where the factory. The, is, is the, the fact is that once the it, once the fruit gets to the to the winery, it's too late to to fix problems in the in the vineyard. So you should be involved from the very beginning to actually sort of say, well, this is what this is the kind of fruit that I want. Therefore, you should be doing this. Yeah. Or or, or yeah, exactly. They're, they're working in, in in partnership. Yeah. You know, um, and that's why a lot of these organic biodynamic wines they have a sense of provenance because generally the vineyard is very close to the winery um and they do work Mm -hmm. rather than renting off properties and things like that Mm -hmm. um and so um in terms of the the wine idealist the blog um what what you're trying to communicate and what you're passionate about I believe that sort of played into, uh, and maybe even inspired by some of these um, fairs that you attended in London. I believe you sort of ran something recently uh, in Newcastle along the same lines. Yeah. Um, well, rootstock happened in February, and I was blown away by that sure. because that opened the lid off Australian wines and New Zealand wines mm-hmm. even more. You know, I was like, so, that, so that wow. was a that was a fair in Sydney. Yeah, that was a fair in Sydney organised by. Um, Guys from uh, Enoteco and Mike Benny, James Hurd, sure. and um, Giorgio. His last name escapes me, but anyway, that that was like holy crap! This is amazing. Um, and 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 was that anything to do with Return to Terroir? No, not really. It was it was basically these four guys, these three guys. They 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 liked these types of wines. Yeah, let's see if we can put on a festival. Okay, uh, and that's what they did. Yeah, um, I was like, well. I really like these wines. Sure. And I want people to, to know about these wines. And I want... The Hunter Valley was where it started for me. Mm-hmm. There's four Hunter Valley wine growers. Um, and I wanted to connect them all together and bring them into a single space and have a dinner that, that showcased not only their wines, um, but the produce that we can get from the Hunter as well. I really wanted to just push the, the Hunter Valley. Sure. What ended up happening, though, is we were like, well, let's go the whole hog and put on a tasting in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So in lieu of getting any of the, the producers actually over to pour their wines, although some of them did come, um, we had um, the wineries send us six bottles, three bottles of wine, three bottles of red. They wanted to showcase some literature that we could put out. Yep. Uh, and we grabbed some pourers, some guys that you know knew a little bit about wine, a little bit about talking about this particular wine, these wines, yep. and invited people to come along. Mm-hmm. Um, we opened our doors on Sunday the 28th of July at one o'clock by 25 past one, we had lines out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, by quarter to two, we were turning people away. <laughs> um, we'd sold 160 tickets in total through for the tasting. Sure. And we had 60 people come through the dinner and those four Hunter Valley winemakers got together. We were paired that their wines were paired and matched with a five course degustation by Tim Montgomery, who was an incredible chef uh, mm-hmm. in Newcastle. And it was just a day where it was like, wow, yeah, real wines, artisanal wines, natural organic biodynamic wines, people are curious about them. People want to drink them. People want to find out what's going on. And to host something like that in Newcastle Mm -hmm. is no mean feat. Sure. It's it's pretty tough to do things like that. You know, there's loads of events going on. There's lots of competition for things. And um, it was pretty cool to see that you could – create something like that sure and um obviously you're down here in melbourne uh on a bit of a, a road trip mm-hmm. um you've brought a, a buddy down from newcastle and uh, and obviously you've been mentioning um some 
local <laughs> Victorian yeah. uh, producers, and you've been sort of traveling through some of the regions. How, how have you found it? Oh, Victoria's blown me away. The, 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 um, the initial idea was to um, accumulate a whole bunch of stories for yep. upcoming articles. Sure. Um, but also to... Um, I'd never really driven through Victoria as an adult. I'd gone through on family holidays and things like that. Um, and the fact that there were... This, this lid had opened up, this hole had opened up, and these guys are floating around. I thought, yeah. well, let's go and check them out. Let's, sure. let's have a look. So... We started in Beechworth and we um, went to Sorenberg mm-hmm. and then we went to Heathcote, uh, to Jasper Hill. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, the drive from Heathcote through the Massenden Ranges was one of the most stunning drives I've done in Australia. It's amazing, isn't it? I didn't even realise that a place like that existed in yeah. Australia. You, you drive from Christchurch to Central Otago and you're blown away every step of the way. You, no matter where you look, you're, you're looking at something incredible. Yeah. It was similar to that. Yeah. You know, these great big boulders, these lovely rolling hills, these white clouds, blue skies, grey clouds, sheep, cows, all these beautiful things. And you think, this is cool. This is in Australia as well. This is unreal. Yeah. Um, so we went to the Macedon Ranges, to Cobra Ridge. Um, and then out to the Grampians, um, and to Dunkeld, uh, and spoke oh, you to, went to the Royal Mail. We went to the Royal Mail on Wednesday night, yeah, for dinner, um, and um, had um, dinner with Tamara Irish from Enigma Variations in uh, Dunkeld. Okay, she's a natural winemaker down there. Wow. Um, then across to Geelong, spoke to um, Lethbridge, mm-hmm. Lethbridge Wines. Yesterday we were in the Mornington Peninsula uh, at Avani. Uh, which is in the Mornington uh, on Red Hill. And we had a, an amazing afternoon yesterday, such um, magical hospitality. There was rainbows forming in the skies. They were landing in the vineyard. Um, Shashi and Devendra Singh, who were the, the, the owners and one winemaker, um, you know, they cooked up this pasta and we had cheese and we drank, you know, all these vintages of their, of their Avani Syrah and, and uh, it was just it was amazing. So we're in Melbourne now um, to check out sort of the small bar scene, see what's happening around here, see if it's as big as it, what's going on in Sydney mm-hmm. with, um, you know, this natural wine scene, these these guys that are pushing these kind of wines. Uh, Sunday we're going to be in the Yarra and we're going to go and hang out with Bobar, Tom and Sally Belford from Bobar Wines, and then we'll be at uh, Thousand Candles on Monday with Bill Downey. And then driving up back to Beechworth um, for a rendezvous with Castagna. A reunion, almost. Well, it'll be, yeah. Almost like coming full circle. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm going to be a big fanboy when I get there, and yeah. I'm cool with that. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> That's a pretty amazing experience, spending a bit of time with Julian, particularly particularly up at his place, seeing, seeing his, his vineyard. Is... Well, that's the wine that started everything. Sure. For, for me, anyway. Exciting. Yeah. And, and, and so... Coming up in the future, have you got are you going to run the event again, or just continue writing on the on the blog and more articles? We're going to plan uh, to do what's in your glass again next year. Yeah, certainly. Um, I've got a little bit of things to do between now and then. Um, I'm going to be making some wine for fun um, in the, in the upcoming Hunter Valley Vintage. Yeah, um, I'm going to. I'm speaking with Ross McDonald from Macquarie Dale. And we're going to try and figure out um, to make just a small batch of, of something. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking a field blend. Yep. Um, really don't know, to be honest. I, I, um, I'm I, just curious to learn. Um, we'll be going to do vintage over in um, 
Central Otago next next year um, at Quartz Reef and at um, with Rudy with yeah with Rudy it's exciting and at Ripon as well um, so that'll be cool to sort of spend two weeks a in the Central Otago b to um, to just be surrounded by awesome people and wine yeah um, and yeah and then obviously we'll have what's new guys there's lots and lots going on and it's uh, it's good fun these are good problems to have yeah absolutely. <laughs> And there's, there is a lot of energy and a lot of interest, as you say, in, in, in wines of this nature, uh, both, both from Australia and being imported. So um, there's, I think there's lots of opportunities. Absolutely. If, you, if I can just basically, and not me personally, but just be a, a small, tiny little piece of that promotion of what Australian wines are capable of. Sure. Because there are some incredible wines that are made here and they're not all the cheap, you know, six quid a bottle Tesco's budget savers. They are premium, amazing, gorgeousness, beautiful, incredible wines yeah. that need to be on someone's table somewhere mm-hmm. and someone going, whoa, yeah. is this from Australia? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And New Zealand as well. But New Zealand doesn't have as big of a problem presenting itself as I think Australia does. But it already has a much more premium yeah, certainly cool climate. Premium tag is, yeah, is already established. Absolutely, uh, Australian have a lot to catch up on, but you know they're such incredible winemakers. They're so generous. They're so intelligent. They're so thoughtful. They um, they're making these things. Yeah, and they need to. Someone needs to hear about it. Cool. Well, uh, I really appreciate you um, stopping by whilst you're in Melbourne, uh, Daniel. Um, enjoy the rest of your time here in Victoria, obviously, and hope to see you again soon in the future. No worries, James. Thanks for having me, mate. Okay. Uh, thanks again, guys. Uh, make sure that you follow um, uh, Daniel on Twitter. He is at the Wine Idealist, and go and visit his blog, uh, which you'll find um, at wineidealist.com. Um, you can follow myself uh, at the at sorry at Intrepid Wino. Uh, you can follow the podcast at the Vincast, both on Twitter, and make sure you subscribe on iTunes or at the at the blog intrepidwino.com. Uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon. Bye.